Hi, and welcome to Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. I'm David McGuffin. Today, we're on the high seas. We're on board the Polar Prince icebreaker in Atlantic Canada's spectacular Bay of Fundy. Hey, good morning. Can you come up to the bridge? Copy that, Jeff. The voice you just heard is our guest today, Jeff Green. He's leading the ocean conservation expedition we've hitched a ride on for the next week. He's also the founder and president of Students on Ice. Where are we heading into? We are heading into Digby, um, which is in the Annapolis Basin. Calm, calm, foggy morning. This is a working expedition with scientists and researchers, commercial fishers, indigenous youth, students, artists. Over the next few episodes, we'll ride the Bay of Fundy tides, highest in the world, exploring the many wonders of this spectacular part of Canada's Atlantic seaboard. For this interview, we're on Seal Island, a windswept mix of colorful fishermen's cottages, stunted trees, rocky shores, and tidal pools. Um, the oldest wooden lighthouse in the Maritimes, okay. one of the oldest in Canada, yeah. just, just down that trail. And I'll be talking with Jeff Green about his decades-long journey as an expedition leader in the Arctic and Antarctica and building up students on ice. His pioneering effort to combine sea voyages with students, scientists, indigenous people, and more to bring a greater urgency to understanding the importance healthy oceans have for continued life on this planet. For his work, Jeff was awarded the Order of Canada in 2012. He's also a fellow of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. Here we go. So I'm always curious where our explorers got their start. And so where was home for you? Where, where, where did you grow up and what were your parents doing? <laughs> I grew up in southern Ontario, on Lake, Lake Ontario, yeah. a little town. Well, we weren't even in a town. We were out in the country yeah. farm farmland near Orono and Bowmanville, Newcastle sure. before they became on Part the edge of, of Suburbia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, my, my mom and dad, um, my dad was a school teacher, principal, administrator. And my parents were amazing. Very, they, We had a lot of freedom as kids, especially living in the country. And I think we were, we were connecting to the natural world without even understanding it. Yeah. Uh, or knowing that's what we were doing. Living there too, there was this creek called the Wilmot Creek, which flowed into Lake Ontario. And it wasn't really until I, in retrospect, I saw Bill Mason's film Paddle to the Sea. Yeah, yeah. That it, that I, we were, I, they showed it in all the elementary schools back then. So I was probably seven or eight years old when I first saw it. And, and I think that planted a seed that that little creek was connected to the ocean Amazing. yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah um and flash flash forward to the canada c3 exhibition we actually took the little carving the actual of, one of the paddle yeah from the movie yeah wow, amazing we took it on our journey coast to coast to coast yeah um the mason family yeah. le- lent it to us but I, I credit my my parents for letting me go and yeah. do whatever these crazy things Being and so it was camping involved what was camping it? canoeing yeah. my dad had a sailboat sailed a lot yeah on lake uh, ontario lake ontario exactly yeah, yeah, yeah we yeah. had we had a a 25 foot uh northern uh, northern 25 yeah um and yeah i went to europe on an exchange program kind of started to see the, the 
the bigger world when I was 16. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually wound up there back in Europe working as a ski instructor. Nice. Ran out of money. Wound up in the south of France and called my mom from a train station to get money to bring me back home. And and that took a while back then. Yeah, there was no e-transfer. Yeah. No, you had to <laughs> go to the American Express office. And right. We went, uh, I was traveling with this buddy of mine, Dave, and and uh, the guy at the American Express office said, oh, sorry, your money hasn't come. Come back on Monday. Yeah. And that weekend, I thought, maybe I could get a job in one of these boats down in the Mediterranean. So I knocked on a bunch of yachts, and they told me to get lost in French. Yeah. And then walking down the harbor in Nice, yeah. this bum, let's call him, in the street. Yeah. Uh, well, in the harbor, he says, Qu'est-ce que tu fais, monsieur? What are you doing? Yeah. He said, oh, I'm looking for a job on a boat. Yeah. And he was into his third bottle of wine by yeah. that. And he's like, you should go on that yacht over there. They'll hire you. And I went on board, uh, talked to some of the crew. They gave me the owner's phone number, I think just to get rid of me. Yeah. And I went to a pay phone and called this guy in England, yeah. Collect, and said, hi, you know, my name's Jeff. I'm a Canadian. I hear you might need a crew member on your on your yacht. And he asked me a few questions like, do you know how to work the ropes? I said, oh, yeah, I know how to work the ropes. Yeah. And how old are you? And I was 19, and I might have said I was 20-something. Yeah. And at the end of the conversation, he said, okay, I want you to move on tonight, and you're the new captain. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's so we went back to the youth hostel, got Dave, who was, we hadn't had much to eat in those last few days. And yeah. So guess what, Dave? We've got a yacht. Yeah. <laughs> and we moved on that night. Dave's I, the first mate now. Is Dave that was the first mate. Um, he stayed for two or three months. I stayed for almost three years. Get out. And sailed that all over the place, did you? Or? Sailed, not a lot, actually. We were, it was a kind of a Mediterranean. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't a big adventure thing but it, but that experience is one of those those um, things in life where you turn left instead of right and yeah. your whole life had, can be different and I've always tried to share that with youth you don't go from A to B you go A to Z to G to F yeah. and that's what makes life yeah. so amazing um, but that experience certainly was one of those left turns I got to know the the bum in the street too. Yeah. It turned out well, he called himself Mr. Clark. Yeah. And he said he was the illegitimate son of General MacArthur and he used to compose music for the King of Belgium. And one day we uh, Greg and I, this guy from South Africa, we bought him a used clarinet. Yeah. And he, we gave it to him and we didn't see him for about a week. Mm-hmm. And then one one morning yeah. on the side of the dock, drunk as a skunk, there was Mr. Clark playing the clarinet. No way. And he really could play. Wow. wow. So who knows? <laughs> There's a story there. There's a huge story there. But then, uh, yeah, a friend of mine said, do you want to go up to the Arctic? In 19, this was 1993 or 94, mm-hmm. up to Ellesmere Island and oh, wow. to drive the Zodiac because he knew I could drive the Zodiac. And that was kind of the beginning of the polar journey. Yeah. And that, like, I was blown away. I didn't know anything about the Canadian Arctic. Yeah. Most Canadians don't, and I mean, to be fair, right? Didn't yeah. learn anything in school about Inuit culture uh, and so on. So I just wanted to learn everything I could. I tr- bought every book, read everything I could about the North, 
and then the same group it was a group called marine expeditions out of toronto mm-hmm. said well you must know if you know about the arctic you must know about the antarctic so they sent me to the antarctic right. and and that was the beginning of basically right. 20 well not quite 20 at the time but uh a decade of going pole to pole nice. and eventually became an the expedition leader and yeah. at a way too young age back then Incredible. In Antarctica, both the poles, I guess, too. I mean, now it's a big cruise destination. I mean, that was early days of that, wasn't it? What was that like? It was relatively early. There had been expeditions going down there since the late 60s. Very few, but a little bit more in the 80s. But the annual number of visitors to Antarctica when when I first went went was under 10,000 a year, and now it's closing in on 100,000 a year. Wow. Um, it was amazing. It was still, there weren't, there, you didn't see many other ships. You, you felt like you were, there were less rules yeah, yeah. <laughs> as well. Yeah, I, it was an absolutely extraordinary time, like the early 90s. To yeah. the, and But they were all adults that we were taking. They were tourists, they were researchers, filmmakers, some scientists, um, but one day standing on a beach, I remember the beach very clearly. It was Bailey Head on Deception Island. There's about half a million chinstrap penguins there, and they just there's a penguin highway. There's white, well, black backs going up and white fronts coming down. Yeah. And just thought, imagine if we could take kids at the beginning of their life to yeah. this place. Yeah. And I shared that idea with a few folks. One was Dr. Don Walsh, who was with me at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, came back to Canada, talked to Mary Simon, who was Canada's circumpolar ambassador. Now, now Governor General. Now say. Governor General. Uh, Dr. Fred Roots, who was, became one of my greatest mentors and just an exceptional person. He was uh, one of Canada's senior polar leaders. Mm-hmm. And others, a few school boards. and And somehow with that kind of support behind the idea it it gave it some legitimacy that maybe we could actually do this and uh and so in 1999 i chartered a ship maxed out seven credit cards and (laughs) it was like i don't know how it happened but it happened this was antarctica yeah we went for some reason we just we went to antarctica first right and we took 50 canadian kids all funded or they raised the money and it it just exceeded our expectations and proved proved the point that this type of opportunity yeah um you could see it right away right right away like yeah um some i still know students from that very first expedition and how it impacted them and um so that it went from there kind of just snowballed from there yeah can i just Go back to a quarter million, what kind of penguins were they? Chin straps. So what's it like being a handful of humans on a beach with a quarter million chin strap penguins? Because I don't think that's something a lot of people have experienced. Yeah, it humble, uh, the Antarctic humbles you for some many, many reasons and inspires you. But uh, you feel like you're, you don't belong there. The penguins are not afraid. So if you sit down on that beach, they'll come up and, peck you in the in the leg or in your boot um it shows you who's really in control which is mother nature and 
something humans need that kind of dose of reality and and crossing the drake passage to get to antarctica usually breaks people down quite a bit at least it did then um, on the ships we were using because by the time people got from cape horn to the tip of the antarctic peninsula they'd usually been sick for two days but then then you see the the icebergs you see the glaciers you see the whales and the penguins and it and and it built people back up again but it took that to that that almost like a cult without the drugs it it took breaking them down first to build them back up (laughs) yeah so we just facilitated that really mother nature did most of the work but uh it was it was a simple idea which imagine if we could expose youth at the beginning of their life to these cornerstones of our global ecosystem and how that would change their their futures and their perspectives and instill ethics particularly a connection to nature and then over the last two decades it's it's evolved and grown to culture and history and flora fauna and broad big the big issues like climate change but also mental health and yeah. careers. And so, it, it, yeah, it's become a, a, a much bigger and broader thing, including the participants. It used to just be Canadians, yeah. Canadian students. Yeah. And now we've had uh, youth from 57 different countries right. around the world, yeah. thousands yeah. of kids. Yeah. And that's cool because it's global youth addressing global issues right. together. Yeah. So as, as things evolved... Yeah, we we did the Canada C3 expedition in 2017, which was not yeah. just a youth-focused journey, but it yeah. brought this cross-section of Canadian society together. Um, so which people was, who don't remember that, can you just describe that? And, uh, <laughs> I can try. I'm yeah. still digesting it. It's, yeah. It was a 150-day journey, 25,000 kilometers, using the Polar Prince as our platform. The ship we're on now, yeah. The ship we're on now, a former Canadian Coast Guard icebreaker. Um, and s- sailing around the country from Toronto to Victoria, B.C., to, I mean, af- I guess officially it was a, an, a, an official event of Canada 150, the celebration of our, our sesquicentennial. But it, it really evolved into a journey that looked at the past, the present, and the potential future of Canada. Right. And we had newcomers to Canada, we had elders, educators, youth, musicians, artists, scientists, politicians, it, and put them all together on a ship for 10 days of time yeah. and just let those conversations, some of them very, very difficult conversations, you know, particularly, if, for instance, if we, we had a, a residential school survivor on board who wasn't celebrating Canada 150, right. um, those those conversations and for many they they were learning that part of Canada's history for the very first time which is incredible um, I think now most Canadians are, are coming to understand what did happen yeah. here and yeah. and that's really important so that journey Canada 150 or C3 as it was called coast to coast to coast yeah. which also became known as crazy 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 (laughs) (laughs) it changed everybody's lives like and all the connections and the things that were inspired by that um 
are still continuing today. Yeah. But we thought during COVID, why don't we charter that same ship, the Polar Prince again, um, for all of our future expeditions, instead of using big ships that we mm -hmm. were using pre-COVID. Because right. a ship like the Polar Prince is um, more COVID-friendly. Yeah. It's more intimate. It's yeah. more hands-on. It's, um, it's more climate-friendly. And uh, so here we are. We've chartered this ship, which is now the only indigenous-owned icebreaker in the world. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we, we put proposals out. How could we keep the ship busy and funded and all the rest because we we can't do that just with students on ice expeditions yeah. and and uh yeah like we could should have called students on ice students on oceans right, right. and effectively this expedition is a bunch of students yeah. of all ages on the ocean um, coming together to hopefully understand the ocean better and and help find ways for um, for a healthier future, uh, more protected areas in the short term, but yeah, just to be that kind of a catalyst, and sure, I think it's working. Well, the ice part of the name is still a, it's a good reminder of the fact that it's our polar regions that are really getting walloped the hardest too. When you talk about oceans and the effects of climate change and that, and you, I mean, this twenty four years doing this, but you've been in polar regions you know, for decades now, right? And I'm just, mm. what, I mean, what have you seen with your eye that's changed in that time? Well, in the Arctic, we see more changes than we do in the Antarctic, although those changes are also happening in Antarctica. They're just less visible. In the Arctic, we're seeing, well, on this very simple level, glaciers disappearing. Yeah. Sea ice is diminishing Inuit um, elders are describing all kinds of changes from when they were children, from changes to the the permafrost to the land, the tundra, new bugs, new birds, new fish. Uh, simply put, it there's warming happening. Um, but the main the main cha changes we see are with the ice, both yeah. sea ice and land-based ice. And, it's not good for no. so many reasons. No. Um, we need that ice, and the, the Arctic needs that ice. The polar bears need that ice. Uh, the people need that ice. Uh, and uh, and the consequences of, of the melting, um, we're already seeing them globally, like this hurricane coming our way right now. The floods, the, yeah. the fires, the droughts globally. Yeah. You put energy into a system, the, the global system, and things happen. It's like boiling an egg. Um, we're putting a lot of energy into the, into this global ecosystem and it's, it's manifesting itself in, in warming and everything else that we're seeing right now. So, so f it's really great that we expose youth to that because then they kind of get it when you see it, when you touch it, when you feel it, yeah. when you talk to an elder face to face, when you look into the eyes of a bowhead whale, those issues and things become really personal. They yeah. touch they touch you in the heart. And that's when I think action and commitment can be inspired yeah. more than in other situations. And yeah. so we've seen these kids now who are not, not kids, they're in their thirties yeah. and forties yeah. now, who are are making a difference. Um when I first started students on ice 
I, I talked to David Suzuki a few times, and right, at yeah. one point, David said, "Well, you're, you know, you're having a pretty—I can't repeat his exact words—but you're having a pretty big carbon footprint there, Green. Yeah. You better make sure those kids make a goddamn difference." <laughs> <laughs> and that always stuck with me, and and that's really what it's been about. And yeah. and it's not just the expedition; it's what happens when they go home. Yeah. yeah. And they need support. They need to be um, connected nurtured and in some cases funded for their ideas and that's what our alumni program has been doing now for 20 years Should we talk about alumni i mean not to single people out but who, who are some of the graduates that you you're sort of proud to have seen come up and having an impact now oh boy i mean the, uh, so many and it for different reasons it might be because they they chose to finish high school yeah you know or chose to lead a healthier life they they didn't go on to become a famous person, um, but they they were given hope and connection. And a lot of the youth these days are so like, mental. The prevalence of mental yeah. health issues is yeah. bigger than I was when I was a kid. Yeah. Others go on to write books. They yeah. attend the COP meetings on climate change. They they take leadership positions in their communities. They um, they invent things uh, they become teachers and you name it and but in in their heart is still this ethic that stays with them and, and helps guide their choices uh yeah there's been some certainly higher profile yeah. people uh, kids and and staff because it's not just the youth that get impacted it's it's the adults like yeah. when minister mckenna when she, when she, Catherine McKenna was the environment minister, she right. came up to the Arctic with us for the first time. And to, I think being with the youth, with the elders, she went canoeing or kayaking with uh, an elder named Musa that really changed her understanding of Canada's north yeah. and inspired her uh, to do some of the things that she did. The speech she came up with was a, not the speech she gave yeah. after spending five, six days uh, on the students on ice expedition. How did that change? Do you know? Well, it, it brought in the the um, the Inuit perspective, yeah. quite simply, and and what this all meant to the Inuit. You guys are students on ice. And you're, I think, most famous for your Arctic you know, expeditions. You're obviously you're branching away from the ice a little bit. Mm. And just what, what's the thinking behind that? or the, the concept of the ocean conservation expedition that we're doing right now, which is about a month long, was to bring together all these different organizations and people that are involved in in the oceans, but often don't connect. They work yeah. in silos, um, whether they're governmental or academia or fishermen or, or youth. Um, and by bringing people together, you create the relationships that you really need, I yeah. think, at the core to yeah. find the solutions, the sustainable solutions. So we've got the Canadian Wildlife Service who are largely focused on, on seabirds. We've got Parks Canada who who do a lot across the country through their national park system for conservation and education. Um, we have uh, Dalhousie and, and Acadia and, and students and teachers, yeah. professors. We've got uh, groups of indigenous youth from across the Maritimes uh, and, and and the list goes on. Industry is really critical to 
as a piece of this puzzle, a big piece of the puzzle. So we had the ocean supercluster represented earlier on in in the journey, and I th- yeah I think that's where the magic can happen. Yeah, and we see it happening. Yeah, people connecting, learning, listening from each other, and inevitably that leads to to new ideas, to partnerships, to initiatives. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's not the it's not the answer, but I think it it can be a, a real contributor to to what we what we need, and that's more of our ocean, not just protected, but we just need we need all kinds of solutions for a healthier yeah. ocean. Yeah, yeah. It's critical for so many reasons. We're seeing how unhealthy the ocean is globally right now. Um, and life on land needs a healthy ocean. Yeah, no, life on land doesn't exist without a healthy ocean. No, right. and we've been asking people, what does the ocean mean to you? I just asked Lynn, who lives here, yeah. and and instantly she said, well, it's everything. Yeah. Um, and it's true. Every other breath we take comes from the ocean. Uh, we, we, It is the lifeblood of the planet. 70% of this planet is covered by water, oceans, lakes, rivers. Yeah. and. We should have called it planet water, not planet Earth. Um, but here we are, and we've we've every single person we've spoken to on this expedition, and in my 35 years on on the global ocean, I've never met anybody that doesn't want a healthy ocean. But when you hear what oceans mean to people, it's it's incredible. Like everybody loves the ocean, and yet we've treated it like a dumping ground. Yeah. So there's a there's this. There's been a disconnect, and I, I think now we're starting to understand how important it is yeah. for biodiversity, for our life, and, uh, and I think that's where yeah. the potential lies. And we're seeing globally, like this is the UN decade of the ocean. We have this 30 by 30 goal um, to protect. That. Thir- 30 by 30 is the... the the catchphrase for protecting twenty, sorry, <laughs> protecting thirty percent of ocean and land yeah. by twenty thirty, which is eight years away from, from right, right now. And Canada's made big strides in that recently too, haven't they? We were basically at about one percent in twenty fifteen, wow. and now we're up to about fourteen yeah. percent, and that's thanks to a number of initiatives, um, different types of of call them marine protected areas but they're also called national marine conservation areas national wildlife areas indigenous protected and conserved areas so there's no blanket um, model that works and there's you know these different types of protected areas but increasingly i think the consensus is to be truly successful they need to they need to be community-driven and and community-led and community-managed, uh, so so that it's not just a, a piece of paper. Right. You know, it truly is working for everybody. Um, and uh, if Canada wants to get to the thirty by thirty goal by yeah. by twenty thirty, we cannot do that without Indigenous-led marine conservation. Um, it is we won't even come close to 30 percent and let's hope we go beyond 30 percent but um there's been some amazing success stories talarutu pimanga in the arctic which is canada's 
uh, one of the newest and largest marine protected areas in, uh, in on our coastline. That's in Nunavut. That's in Nunavut. Yeah, it's a new one, yeah. it's basically what's been called Lancaster Sound, the mm-hmm. eastern entrance to the Northwest Passage. Um, Talarutupi Munga was uh, signed off in 2019 yeah. as a national marine conservation area, but uh, it wouldn't have happened without without uh, Inuit leadership and blessing yeah. and and now management um, there are other examples of that uh, and many that are pending so that that is I think just not only a hundred percent just like it, it's 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 immoral not to go and and when we sailed around Canada in 2017 yeah for the C3. Canada C3 yeah. from the moment we left the tip of of uh, Newfoundland until we got to the tip of Vancouver Island, which is 70% of Canada's coastline, give or take, yeah. that was exclusively indigenous communities, which that is not a narrative that's known in our in our country. Um, they have been guardians and gatekeepers of our coastlines for millennia, and, and the only way we can truly um, get to 30% of our ocean protected and beyond is with with indigenous leadership and 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 so that's happening around the country um i i i'm hopeful but an expedition like ours is just meant to be a bit of a a catalyst yeah continue to bring the stakeholders together and then raise awareness across the country about not just what's happening what's possible but why why showcasing the beauty and the wonders of these places like where we're sitting right now i think is a a key piece of the puzzle you've been at this for a long time now decades and um you know obviously there's a lot of climate trending that's you know very negative and uh you know i think there's a there's a growing degree of panic and on on the planet about what's happening and uh i mean i just what, what gives you hope when you're when you're looking at where we are right now and and whether that's physically here or in the bigger picture what gives me hope a number of things give me hope seeing seeing how inspired and motivated and uh how how much ideas these youth have um i really see and i don't mean to say that we we need like it's up to the youth to save us because it absolutely isn't. Um, leaders today need to do everything they possibly can for these leaders for tomorrow. Um, but there is a lot of amazing things happening right now around the world in terms of innovation, technology, uh, consciousness about about the planet, I think, is growing. There's, I mean, clearly, if you read the news, there's a lot of really bad stuff going on too. And it's easy to get sort of yeah depressed by that and and lose the optimism but i've always chosen to focus more on the optimism um and so what gives me hope it's seeing people i think people give me hope um being being out in these places around like the arctic the antarctic the ocean seeing the beauty and the wonder and the awe and the way it makes you feel um is hope but also it's the motivation and inspiration to to do what we do we you know with students and ice we've really chosen to focus on the the educational piece 
Um, we need more than that. We need policy. We need legislation. We need technology. We need um, you know, new models, uh, economic models that make sense for the planet. But we've chosen to really be a, a facilitator of, of the educational component, which I think is critical. Um, so, so yeah, I, I see it, the hope in the, in people. Yeah. I think if I have to give one answer. Yeah. So we, you've been asking everyone on this trip w- w- what the ocean means to them. What mm. does it mean to you? It means all those things that the, everybody else says, like it's life. Um, today, Lynn said it's everything for other people. They say it's home. Um, we've been asking hundreds of people over the last few years what that and and every single person has something amazing to say about what the ocean means to them which i'll get to my answer in a second but it it, that's what's so perplexing if the ocean means so much to people in such a heartfelt way why have we mistreated it so much it it speaks to a disconnect yeah and and i i think you know that's just we didn't understand we didn't yeah. we just thought it was infinite and it could take everything we threw at it and we could take everything from it and it would just be fine um and now we know that's not the case yeah. we're seeing how how our treatment of of the planet and the ocean has has uh manifested itself so so f- to me i guess it's it's definitely been a classroom Mm-hmm. We've used the ocean yeah. as a floating yeah. classroom yeah. to educate and yeah. inspire. And last question, and I ask all my guests this, uh, a favorite place, and can you describe a favorite place in Canada? In Canada? Yeah, and it's got to be one place. <laughs> narrow you down, and it might be a happy place you go to in your mind when you're stressed, or a place you just love to be at. Or... Well, we're very privileged to have a cottage in, on a lake in Canada. And that's uh, definitely my happy place and our family's happy place nice. for so many reasons. But it's it's the water and it's the it's the, the forest and everything that that you know does to you. People are the water in particular. People, why do people go to lakes? Why do they go to the ocean? Why do they go to the river? We're drawn to it. We're made of water, our yeah. bodies, and and uh, we need it. So. Um, yeah, that would be the top happy place for for me. At the cottage. At the cottage, on the dock. Um, but beyond that, I'd have a, a long list of happy places across this country. Magical places, uh, like up a salmon river, watching spirit bears feeding yeah. in the stream, or up uh, in on El, not Ellesmere, up on Baffin Island. This one little place i won't name the name because i don't want anybody else to go there uh which was like an oasis in the middle of the arctic with a with a beach and a flowing river and a a waterfall um red-throated loons on on the pond glacier in the background bowhead whales out offshore (laughs) that was and that is an amazing place um and uh oh my god the list is this we are in canada yeah we we are beyond yeah. fortunate. Yeah, yeah. No, the strength of this country is its proximity to nature, without question. Absolutely. Um, one of the amazing things we've 
done over the years with students on ice is bring youth from inner city, inner cities, New York, Chicago, some of the toughest neighborhoods in the world. And they get up to the Arctic or the Antarctic and suddenly they're standing on top of a glacier. Yeah. And can you imagine what's going, I can't imagine what's going through their minds, but it's not what was going through their mind when they were back, you know, in in the Bronx or Brooklyn or the south side of Chicago. Um, or we had some students from Rwanda and one day they were out in a in an Inuit kayak paddling around icebergs like those moments when you that it, I, I still can't describe what it, what that means but it's they're connecting to nature in a way that will change them forever you know and uh, yeah well that's what this is all about really isn't it so yeah it yeah. is it yeah. is so it sounds like we're uh, people are drifting back in towards the zodiacs here. So I'm going to say thank you. <laughs> thank you, David. Thank you for this journey, for this conversation, for everything. And uh, yeah, I hope well, let's do it again. We'll do it again somewhere someday. else. And we will do it again in two weeks' time. Our next episode, we'll spend time in zodiacs, checking out the Bay of Fundy with divers, scientists, students, artists, everyone who makes up this ocean conservation expedition. Many thanks to the crew of the Polar Prince and the staff of Students on Ice for helping make this episode possible. If you like Explore, remember to give us a five-star rating and write a review. It helps people find us. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And also a reminder that the Royal Canadian Geographical Society Annual Fellows Dinner is in person again this year, first time since the pandemic. It's on November 16th at the War Museum in Ottawa. It's always an amazing event, bringing together an incredible mix of explorers and scientists, researchers, adventurers, and policymakers. And tickets are available at rcgs.org. So until next time, when we'll explore again, I'm David McGuffin. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just a, a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We have Simpson about June 10th with the Fur Brigade consisting of a number of yacht boats, each man by ten voyageurs. For us Inuit, it means that Inuit oral history is very strong. And we flew over every inch of the country that it could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us. Oh, well, I guess 160 dives or so. There are shrimp fish swimming around outside. It's just fabulous here. Well, I'm a first for Canada.